Welcome to the Amputeo Show. I'm your host, Aristotle Domingo, and joining me today is Deborah Smith. Deborah is a competitive sailor taking home first prize in a sailing with disabilities competition called the Independence Cup in 2016, among others. An avid adaptive golfer and also a survivor. She and I met about four years ago, and her big smile and upbeat personality made us click instantly. Albeit being distance keeps us away from each other uh, more regularly, we know that golf tournaments will always reunite us both. So welcome to the show, Deborah, and thank you for being here. Thank you for inviting me, Aristotle. It is great to talk to you again. Now, this is this is great. I, I You know, again, when I see your face, it's just like yesterday that we saw each other last, you know. Um, again, this just, there's just energy about you and this glow about you that just kind of draws me into to what a great person you are. So thank you for, for, for squeezing me in to your busy golf schedule as the season has started. Um, so well, thank maybe you. I, I feel likewise. Thank you so much. Um, so let, let, let's begin. So you had, a, I, I, I originally, actually, I originally thought that you and I um, had the same time of amputation about four or five years ago, but you started uh, fairly earlier on in your life. Can you share with our listeners that story? I'm sure. Well, my amputation was my my amputation was elective, and it was almost six years ago now. Um, but I, I became disabled at the age of 19 when I survived a tragic accident. Um, I got on a motorcycle for the very first time with my boyfriend. We were going to a picnic, and he was going to pick me up in his car, but his car wouldn't start. Um, so we ended up going on his motorcycle. Uh, we were broadsided in the middle of nowhere, thrown 50 feet into a ditch. And um, he unfortunately was killed instantly. And I sustained injuries from head to toe. My head hit the windshield, my arms hit the windshield, my leg, my right leg was essentially severed. Um, and this was in the early 80s. So when they brought me to the hospital, um, you know, amputation was not, it was certainly, it was always a possibility, but they tried to salvage my leg. So um, I had a quite lengthy recovery at the time. I spent a year out of college, went back the following year. I was still coming back home, which was like three, three and a half hours away for doctor appointments and periodic surgeries that I required. Um, I ended up probably having a couple dozen surgeries within that first five years and was using crutches, um, you know, or a cane, uh, finally towards the end of the five years. But, um, you know, I remember I had a lot of complications, um, and a lot of different surgeries from skin grafts, bone grafts, um, tissue grafts. I ended up having, uh, they're called PMMA beads now, and they're commonplace, but at the time, my doctor, my surgeon um, had applied for um, consideration from the FDA for approval to bring them over from Switzerland because they weren't a common treatment. I, I had osteomyelitis, which was not surprising. It's a bone infection and it's very challenging to eradicate. So for example, um, I was back at school and this was a couple of years after the accident had happened it was December, I remember, and I was studying for finals. And all of a sudden I had a high fever and my leg, which had been an external fixator prior, was finally in a cast. And 
was finally looking like it was healing. And that day I felt some jiggling in the cast. Uh, long story short, I ended up heading back home into the ER. My leg had broken and the bone infection had come back. So there, you know, a couple of years after the initial incident, um, I faced the, the choice of amputation. And I'm really fortunate looking back because I, for one thing, I, I lucked out and got a very innovative surgeon who was willing to look into, he was the president of the Orthopedic Association in the state of Illinois. And he was traveling all over the world, learning about different techniques. And he would take my x-rays with him and discuss my case with people. So I felt really fortunate to have him on my team um, and a supportive family and friends too. But um, anyway, he did a lot of really cutting edge things at the time to help salvage my leg. And I remember back in that time, I actually went to a prosthetic clinic to talk to people with limb difference because I had no idea what that looked like. And that helped me make the decision at the time that I was going to try to preserve the limb that I had. Um, so I did and I got along okay for you know 20 years or so. Um, I graduated from college, got married, had four children and um, you know, I was doing all right. I wasn't as active as I wanted to be. Golf was really difficult. Um, and I really didn't think much about the challenges I had. They were just part of my life. Um, and I would exercise in an elliptical glider or whatnot. But what ended up happening is about 10 years or so ago, my ankle started having some real problems and my foot started to invert and I was walking almost on the side of my foot. So I had some more surgeries and I had a, I had a surgeon go in and actually break my tibia and my fib, fibula and my calcaneus, the heel bone, and try to realign them better. So I was back in my third spatial frame and in a lot of pain, the surgeries were not successful. I was using a walker and I was in pain every time I stood up and I was working with a physical therapist and thankfully she had worked with people with limb difference. And she shared with me one day, she said, you, you've been working harder than a lot of the young people that I treat. And I don't know how much more we can really improve things. Have you thought about what you're going to do next? And we got to talking about amputation and I started doing research on it and seeing surgeons. And ultimately I, I came to the conclusion that my leg was an obstacle and a prosthesis was possibly an opportunity for me to live a life without pain and maybe better function. And when, I mean, when I look back at the decision-making process, at least for me to decide to have an amputation, um, it was very difficult. I think it's always difficult to think about severing a part of you, of your body or your life that you would consider essential. Um, but I started to 
really get humble about the situation I was in. And as I looked deeper into it, I realized that saving my leg was really not what my ultimate goal was. Improving my mobility was my ultimate goal. And I needed a better vehicle to get there than the leg that I was walking on. And so I see what you mean about the different ways in how we look at things. And some people don't have the luxury of you know, making that decision. So ex- like maybe explore that a little in, in you know, you kind of hinted on it a little bit about, you know, being humbled and, and really what that took. But what did that really take? You know, how do you, how do you reconcile those feelings and, and what were the pros and cons as you were doing your research on about to lose your limb? Good questions. Yeah, I was, I, I, I naturally am curious about life. And when a challenge, um, when I'm confronted with a challenge, my natural, my nature is to research and learn all I can. So I was looking, you know, I was talking to surgeons. I went back to one of the surgeons that had done some uh, reconstruction surgery and we had a very good rapport. I went into his office and said, I just wanna let you know, I'm exploring what my options are right now. I'm considering amputation. And he looked at me and said, are you effing crazy? I won't use the word, are you effing crazy? And I said, no, I just came into your office using a walker. I'm not getting any younger. And I don't, you know, I'm, I'm kind of out of options here. Um, so that was really a helpful conversation because his bluntness prepared me for what other people might, how they might respond. And, you know, I wasn't sure how my family would respond or my friends. Um, thankfully, my daughter, my, I have four children, my, my oldest and only daughter, I called and I said, I just want to let you know that I am considering amputation. I'm talking to surgeons. And she said, mom, I think you'll be able to do more with your grandchildren. And that just meant the world to me. And it, it proved to be true. Um, I had a really interesting incident happen chasing my grandson a few years ago down the sidewalk on a busy street and as I'm running after him and I caught up to him and grabbed his hand we were walking back down the sidewalk and just I just felt this grace that wow what Ellie said this is that moment this is that moment and it just made everything worthwhile so, um, but, but certainly going back emotionally, there were a lot of hurdles to get to facing that day. And I was seeing a therapist at the time, um, at the time of my amputation, I was also in the midst of a, of a divorce. I had left an abusive marriage, um, prior while I was having this limb salvage surgery. And that certainly was a, I, I, I don't even have words to um, kind of explain how much trauma that was, uh, trauma and drama, I guess, during those years. But um, 
I was seeing a therapist and, you know, trying to figure out what to do with my leg and the emotions surrounding um, things that were happening in the divorce, but also things that were happening with my leg and the decision to have an amputation. And I was really struggling. I had a lot of anxiety um, leading into the scheduled date. And I kept, I was reading books. I was talking to a dear friend of mine who's a priest. I was talking to my therapist, talking to my friends. And I just thought, I need to find peace in this decision. And one day, <laughs> I, I don't, I was thinking, you know, about the situation. And I realized that expecting to find peace with having an amputation was not perhaps a realistic goal. And the interesting thing about that for me was that as soon as I made that realization, like had that epiphany moment, I let go of the expectation of finding peace. And suddenly I found peace. Um, I just let go and had trust and faith that I've done my research. I'm doing my physical therapy. I have a plan. I have friends. I have family who love me and support me. And I have to just let this happen and unfold and trust that I will be reclaiming my life in the process in so many ways, getting back on my feet, you know, as a prosthetic user and also as a, like a single woman. So. Um, interesting to me when you said, you know, the, the letting go and finding peace and instead of seeking that peace is to just allowing that stuff to, to happen because you've trusted yourself with enough of the reading and the research that you've done because I think of that planning in your head and making sure of those things that you find the peace regardless of what's on the other side of that and I was prepared and my mind was prepared my body was prepared for what it's about to know like what it's about to go through and also made peace with losing the limb I always made of or I always thought of losing my limb as releasing a ball and chain because as I said in the beginning of the thing yes right it's like it's the barrier so I want to ask you now and again maybe this universal thing because of what you're going through at the time looking about it look, looking back at it now do you think that that was the ball and chain you need to release both from your life and it's almost like a cathartic is that the right I'm not sure if that's the right word or symbolism of releasing also that relationship that is toxic to you and releasing this limb is also the physical toxicity of in your body. And then you moving forward as a brand new single woman on a new chapter of your life as a person with an amputation and a person using prosthesis has given you really a fresh start. Yeah, yes, yes. Well, I, I, let me, I've reflected since my amputation on just the last 10 years. And I left an abusive marriage after over 20 years. Um, and 
it was the most courageous thing I've ever done. Um, I felt like I was jumping off a cliff onto jagged rocks without a parachute. And I didn't know how I was gonna collect the pieces, but I knew that it was what I had to do. And the amputation, um, you know, I looked at as a way to reclaim my life. Um, but what I, what I appreciated about it was that being able to let go of that toxic relationship had opened my life up to all these new relationships with my friends and my family and life. And it was restoring me in a way to my younger self and letting go of my leg I guess letting go of the marriage helped me find the strength to let go of my leg. And it again reminded me that sometimes you have to let go of things that you really think are essential in your life, whether it's a physical object or a relationship or, you know, part of your body to make room for new experiences. And there, you know, I collect quotes and one of them that I really like was, um, it's Buckminster Fuller. There's nothing in a caterpillar that tells you it's going to be a butterfly. And I feel, I felt like that many times in my life because I think there've been many experiences I've had that have required me to reinvent myself like sticking, keeping your core, but reinventing yourself and being willing to explore new opportunities and go down new, 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 take new journeys. No, I, I actually love that. Um, and you, ma'am, are a butterfly. Um, <laughs> you're, you're, you're a sweetheart. <laughs> no, I, you know, you just, spread your wings and fly and I think you do that in everything that you've you know what I've known about what you do and 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 hearing this side of the story now of your story now is just proving more as to why you're this upbeat person now um moving on obviously uh in in recovery and and rediscovering yourself talk to me about discovering sailing or have you done that before as well as a, as a as a kid Oh, no, no. Um, interesting background on my sailing. I had never sailed until after my amputation. Um, I was in my prosthetist office one day and he had, he was overbooked and he asked me if a young woman could sit in the same room with me. And it was a very, it's a very open environment in the clinic that he used to be in. So this young woman came in and we started chatting and um, Bridget shared with me that she sailed and she'd been sailing for 15 years or something like that. And I said, well, wow, that's incredible. And she told me about an adaptive sailing organization in the Chicago area on Lake Michigan. And she said, you know, if you'd like to, you know, would you like to go sailing sometime? And I said, sure. I, you know, I've never sailed. So 
I'll, I, I have a lot to learn, obviously. And she said, oh, well, you know, well, great. And she just really bubbly, enthusiastic. And uh, lo and behold, she messaged me on Facebook a few weeks later. And it were, there was a link to a regatta that she was had competed in the year before, and she had won it. And she was the first female skipper to have ever won that regatta. So pretty outstanding um, achievement. And so I saw this link and I thought, oh, that's great, Bridget's gonna be competing in this. And a week later, she messaged me again. She said, well, have you thought about the regatta? About sailing, crewing with me? And I thought, what did I miss? Well, she had invited me to sail with her. I hadn't read the whole message. And I said, Bridget, uh, just messed her, please call me. Because I'm thinking, she must have forgotten that I never sailed before. <laughs> and so we talked and I said, Bridget, you know, I've never sailed before. I, I'd be thrilled to sail with you, but you won last year. You know, I, she said, well, we'll go out a few times beforehand. I just want good energy on my boat. And I said, well, you know, I'm really curious. I want to learn. And lo and behold, I went out a few times and sailed with her. We sailed in this regatta. We had, uh, you usually have an AB or an able-bodied person as part of your crew. So it was Bridget, a young man named Connor and I, and Connor was on a sailing team for his high school. And the three of us ended up winning. And it was just the coolest thing to be a, you know, it was the coolest thing in so many ways to go out and try an entirely new sport that I never would have imagined participating in, that there's a organization that has adaptive boats and a whole, um, you know, like training for, for people with disabilities, all types of disabilities. That was awesome. And then just to join this new community of sailors. There were sailors there from literally all over the world. And I'll never forget some fellows in Galveston that I absolutely adore. They, I met them, they like hoisted me up <laughs> to celebrate. And everyone was just so, um, happy to help each other get better and i i really appreciate that type of environment tell us more about uh, sailing um I, i've never actually sailed, sailed myself and congratulations on on um going you know winning on your first going out as a sailor so you talked about having an able-bodied on the say on on the ship or is it a ship i don't know a boat with you, I don't even know what they're yeah, called. Well, yeah, they're they're pretty small. They're, they're the, the the boats I sail are called sonars, and um, there there's a three person crew. So, what's the rules, I guess, for for uh, adaptive sailing? So, is it that you have to have one AB and then two people with a disability, or could you all be a person with a disability? And then who can take what? Like, is the skipper supposed to be a person with a disability to be in an adaptive sailing, I guess? So sort of the different rules. That, that's a, those are great questions. Um, and I'm not sure I'm equipped to answer them because um, I, I think potentially you could have three people, three people with disabilities on a crew, 
just depending on their comfort level. Um, it kind of depends on the mm -hmm. individuals and what their disabilities are. So for example, I mean, there are some sailors with vision impairments. Um, I sailed in Galveston a couple years ago with a gentleman who had had a stroke and he's not very verbal, but he had sailed as a child and those skills didn't leave him, thankfully. Um, so it, it really depends. And I've also sailed when I, when I mentioned um, one of the regattas, there was a, a man from Switzerland who has no arms and he operates the tiller and does fabulously. Um, my position on the boat has been jib. So I'm the jibber in the front of the boat and I love it. I, sailing is just such freedom because it is the ultimate experience of living in the present moment. When you're out, when you're out sailing, the winds are going to shift. You have to be thinking, you have to be thinking a little bit ahead, but you also have to just be so totally present and not be allowing some mistake that you might've made a minute ago to impact your decision-making in that particular moment. Isn't that like the metaphor of life though? The water is, the wind is unforgiving. All those choices to your point that you have to make, you can't be bogged down by a decision you made 10 minutes ago because the wind has shifted at all already and the water has become unforgiving just now and have to make that swift decision. And I think that's, you know, in our lives as adaptive athletes and a person who adapts, I think that's what people sometimes forget about that meaning is that we can adapt to whatever it is that we're given at this point. Because I think it's second nature, nature to us now to shift gears as quickly as possible. Would you agree? Really good point. Yes, really well said. You know, and it's so, it's so interesting because we've talked about things that we've got, there's such, we have such common, you know, here I want to, I do want, I'll, well, I'll talk about this. I don't know where you'll want to fit it in. But so when I was researching amputation, I was Googling and trying to find other people who had faced this decision. And this is six or seven years ago. And it's a different story today. But then there were not many stories to be found. And I finally read about a woman who was a little older than I was, I think in California, and she had had an elective amputation. And she had um, afterwards competed in triathlons. So that was a template for me, so to speak. It gave me an idea of what might be possible. And it was really helpful, especially because she was a woman and she was older like myself. Um, but you know, now thankfully through media like yourself, you're giving voice to people's stories so that others who are facing these challenges can perhaps find some commonalities in our stories and help them help guide them through mm -hmm. no it's really my my all my whole goal um after you know rediscovering myself if you will through my recovery was to make sure that i share what my recovery was and that was important to me i wanted to share my journey with people 
because I wanted to them to your point before about couldn't you know not finding those many stories. I think when I first experienced being a person with disability at 25, to your point, I didn't find anyone else that you know with my experience. Now it's I go on this whole mission of you are not alone, and there's there's many of us out here. Um, there are many stories of us out here who's who's found successes or found ourselves um, in a different light than what it was before our amputation. And so I go on with that with that story, and I think that what fuels a lot of the advocacy that I do um, through my through the show and and through everything else that I do professionally and in my community. So um, absolutely, sharing stories I think is very important. You know, in any way that you can. Let's yeah. talk golf. Um, because you're also an avid golfer and that's how no so wait I didn't I don't think we met through golf but we have shared the same sort of passion with golf because uh, yes. we met in a conference you know four years yes. ago yeah right sharing, I, have a sharing, great, <laughs> I, I have a great picture of you and I one of my favorites from from a conference I mean I don't know if you remember being out in the hallway and you were doing acrobatics yep yeah. <laughs> and I think and you're 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 supporting me with your feet. Yeah. And I'm like flying like a bird. I mean yep. another like who would have thunk it, really? I mean <laughs> Right? Who 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 knew that you could you could do acrobats, right? So exactly. absolutely, right? Oh my gosh, I do remember that. We did that in the hallway. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> And then, but I, and I didn't know that you had been golfing until, you know, I TV today that, I mean, I knew you were golfing, but I thought you've always been that, an adaptive golfer, but you, you started playing golf way young, like way in your early teens, even high school, you said. I, I did. I, I started golf when I was 10. My parents signed me up for golf lessons through the local park district. And I, I took to it. I, I mean, I enjoyed it. And also both of my parents played. So they were a great example to me. And um, we ended up joining, the, my family joined a golf club. And I remember for the summers after that, my, my birthday's in May. And I would ask for my birthday for unlim- a pass for unlimited range balls for the summer. So I would ride my bike to the golf course, which was you know a few miles away, whatever. And I would hit a bucket of balls that was just, I mean, huge every day. And my parents also um, had me take lessons with the golf pro there. So I was practicing and I ended up playing in high school and was captain of the girls golf team. And we went to the state tournament, which was really wonderful. And you know, I, I think back about it, and that was in the late 70s. So it's pretty amazing to me looking back that we even had a girls golf team. Um, and it helps me appreciate that opportunity. And um, as I mentioned, becoming disabled at 19, a lot of things went on the back burner. Um, when I was first hospitalized, the doctors were saying, we're not sure how well you'll even be able to walk if we save your leg. And you know whether you'll need crutches or cane the rest of your life, whatever, or a brace, because I wore a brace on my leg for a while. Um, 
and then having a family, I had other priorities. Um, after the amputation, you know, my life just started opening up in so many ways. Um, I was fit with a prosthesis and to run and I ran for the first time in 30 some years, which just felt like it's something I had already always dreamed of after being disabled. And I just, I dreamed of it and I thought that there would be a surgical solution to it in the future. If I gave it enough time, there would be a surgery that could help me do that. And lo and behold, it was a surgery to have my leg amputated and get a prosthesis that would empower me to do that. So um, anyway, I, I, did, I did somehow become aware of a, adaptive golf as a thing. And it got me back into golf. Um, I trained and became an adaptive golf coach a couple of years ago. And that's been really a great experience because, you know, we, we work with young people and, and uh, people of all ages, but in all dis disabilities, but to help people realize that golf is an option for them, you know, to introduce them to the game or like myself, I'm re-entering the game. I feel in a lot of ways, like I'm starting over again. And um, I'm, I appreciate that I have some muscle memory, like swing memory that I can build off of, but the rules change, for example, in 2019, they were updated and whatnot. I just feel like I'm a beginner again, which, which is okay. I, I my, well, my, what's that? I was going to say, you know how to begin. Like we all know. I think that's the one thing that we have now. You, that's a great, that is so like, well, very well said. I mean, great point. Um, I'm not, you know, I get out there. I don't hit every shot. Great. Sometimes I hit a great shot, but you got to move on. And I have realized this year that I have three goals for golf for myself. One is to develop my potential and find out what I'm capable of. And the second goal is to help other people discover the game and especially women, because um, there are certainly a lot of men who have, who have historically played and just to bring awareness to women that golf is available. Um, and then the third, my third purpose is to pay tribute to my parents and this gift that they gave me growing up. Um, and my, my dad is um, unfortunately in very poor health and in a nursing facility now. He is, um, he has dementia and Parkinson's. And so there's not much I can do for him, but to be present. And for example, I competed in the Midwest amputee golf tournament that I saw you at the year prior. Right. And um, I was able to bring home some hardware, a trophy, and I brought it over to my dad, you know, for his room. And we don't know how much he recognizes these days or whatnot, but I just felt like if it brings a moment of a positive memory or something, then wonderful, you know? 
yeah, and he's he's the kind of guy that if he recognizes it was it, it was like mine, it would bring him more joy than if it was his. He's just he's just a wonderful man, yeah. and um, he has golf magazines in his room that he looks through. So, you know, I'm just we need to, to get you in a golf magazine so that when he opens it, it's oh your my, photo on it. That would be fantastic. <laughs> That would be fantastic for, for that purpose. <laughs> I, I think, first of all, um, you're right, you know, to realize that in the 70s, even in the early 80s, if you see women playing golf, you know, that that was sort of unheard of back then. So you're pretty much, an, you know, a pioneer of the game, if you will, as well. So now that you're playing in adaptive golf, What's what are the challenges or barriers you faced, or maybe stereotypes that you faced as a woman with a disability playing in adaptive golf? Good question. Um, some some of the challenges are that there aren't many women that are playing. Um, for example, I was in Arizona for a tournament a couple of weeks ago, and there were only two women, myself and another woman woman who completed the tournament. There was another young woman who played, but she wasn't able to complete all the days. So two women and I think about 40 some men. Um, And that's one of the things that we've been talking about um, with the United States Adaptive Golf Association. I'm on the women's committee for the USAGA. And our goal, one of our goals is just to increase awareness amongst women of adaptive golf opportunities and also to try to help with some of the barriers to entry, which um, we had a meeting last week, virtual of course, and we're talking about the financial barriers, for example. I mean, it's expensive to play golf and it's expensive to to travel to tournaments. So um, for example, for myself, I'm playing golf with my mom's 30-year-old Callaway Big Bertha clubs. And I've been, it's been suggested to me that I might look into new clubs. But for me this year, I don't have the financial capability to play in tournaments and get new clubs. So it's kind of one or the other. And I decided for this year, I want to take advantage of all these incredible opportunities out there. I'm going, you know, I went to Arizona last month. I'm going in a couple of weeks for another tournament in June. I'm going to Atlanta for another adaptive golf tournament. So anyway, so back to barriers though, you know, financial barriers are there also equipment barriers and like sponsorship. We would, we're trying to find out if we might be able to talk to some manufacturers and have them help some of the women golfers to obtain clubs or golf balls or what have you, um, just to help, just to help make it easier. Absolutely, I think we need to widen that that reach um, in yes. golf, right? Yes. To include everybody well, else well, in golf. The one other thing that we're talking about on the women's committee is having equal opportunity for women in adaptive golf. Um, For example, for the USAGA, they've recently um, put out on their website some thoughts about a 
pair of golf team. And there needs to be an equal number of opportunities for women in the, I think there are 13 adaptive golf categories. So there needs to be an equal number of opportunities for women as there are for men or slots, if you will. Um, I believe that if we build it, they will come. Meaning if we build a structure where there's opportunities and there are open opportunities for women, women will see those opportunities and come to play. Um, for example, I've played in many adaptive golf tournaments now, and I've played with men who are seated players, meaning they use a wheelchair and a specialized golf cart, like um, a solo rider, for example. But I have never seen a woman using a wheelchair playing an adaptive golf event. And if there was an opportunity there, you know, it, it, that would just be an incredible thing to see. So we need more visibility. Um, women need more visibility on, for example, when I go on an adaptive golf website, they'll have pictures of former tournaments and it's all a bunch of guys. And I love these guys that I play with, but if you're a woman and you've, you've not played in a tournament before, or you're just getting started playing golf and you look at a website and all you see are, are men featured, then I don't know that you make the connection that there are opportunities there for women also. So a lot of this is just an awareness situation. You know, I don't think it's purposeful that there's a bunch of guys on the, on the website homepage, but um, it's just simply an awareness of, hey, if you want to pull women in, then show women that there are women playing. <laughs> no, absolutely. I agree with that. I, I, I use the word um, um, intentional, right? We have to be intentional of what we're trying to portray in, in these situations. Speaking of images, I wanted to go back to, or I wanted to go back to your, you know, the, the, the thing we were talking about, about moving forward, but dealing with what you now look like or the image or the body issue images that you would have from having a disability and dealing with that disability. And I could share that, that bit of my story as well. And then seeing yourself without your limb, uh, how did you uh, reconcile that for yourself? And, and what were the moments of, this is what I look like now? And how do you empower other people to think the, you know, the same way to move forward? Oh boy. Wow. Um, well, after my accident, when I was 19, I was in the hospital and I had, my face had hit the windshield. So I had significant um, lacerations all over my face and surgeries to try to help, you know, reconstruction type of surgeries. Um, and then of course my leg had been essentially severed and reattached. My, my femur had broken. Um, and I remember one day in the hospital, somebody came to my room, a medical professional, and they made, they shared a comment with me that it's hard to forget, especially as a woman, but they said that when I was in the ER, one of the paramedics had commented what a shame. She was a pretty girl. And in that moment, I thought, 
oh my gosh, I was pretty. I didn't identify that way for one thing. And then I thought I was pretty and I'm not anymore. Like, oh my gosh, I didn't even realize that this, and now it's been taken away, you know? And then my leg was just a mess. Um, so it was really difficult at the age of 19. I mean, there's such key years, you know, as a, as a child and a young adult and our identities are so vis visual anyway. So going back to school, for instance, with an obvious disability, and I had a spatial frame several times, so that is just a freak show in and of itself. Um, and then, you know, after I had recovered and was back walking, my leg was very obviously disfigured. And my face had pretty much, you know, it healed um, to a really good extent, thankfully. Um, but I was very conscientious about my leg and I wore pants most of the time. If I wore shorts, I wore a compression stocking for one thing for swelling, but also for, for vanity, for the appearance. And even though I did that, a lot of times people would say, what happened? What happened? And I don't know if people realize when they ask somebody that has a very obvious physical challenge. Um, in, the, in my case, for instance, I lost somebody I cared about in this accident and I lost my physical abilities. And when people would ask me initially, you know, after the accident, what happened? And I was just out in the world trying to go about my day it would take me back to that tragedy. And it was a really difficult question to even answer in a, in a um, soundbite anyway, <laughs> you know? But um, to speak to what you were mentioning about, you know, physical appearance, it was devastating. Um, I remember in college walking down the sidewalk one day and, you know, one thing as a young person and, you know, I'd lost my boyfriend. So I wasn't sure if a guy would ever find me attractive again. And I'm walking down the sidewalk and I look up and my eyes meet this young man who is just, I'm very attractive. Our eyes kind of locked for a moment. And then he looked down and I was wearing a brace and using a cane. And he looked down and then he looked away. And my heart sank. And I kept walking and I was just, I just felt so sad. And literally as I was rounding the corner, walking around the corner, this light bulb went off. And I thought that was a blessing. That just cut through <laughs> so much that I probably would not have had a successful relationship with someone who looked at the world that way because I don't look at the world that way anymore if I ever did. Um, so I looked at it as kind of a, a blessing and 
you know, that said, I still was self-conscious about the, my, my leg. Now, the ironic thing moving forward with the amputation was, you know, you asked about, you know, what the, you wake up without a leg, right? And I remember thinking about that, you know, in the days for just prior to the amputation. And I remember thinking, I just was curious about it. I didn't want to make any value judgment on it. I, I, there's a, there's a Shakespearean, a Shakespearean quote. It is, there's nothing either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. So I decided, you know, I just thought, I'm just curious about what it's going to be like to wake up after so many years. And then my foot's gone. And I came out of surgery, I remember, and I looked down and my foot wasn't there. And my parents had actually, my, my dad drove and had picked me up and driven me three and a half hours to Indianapolis where I had my amputation done. So they were there with me the week that I was in the hospital. And I remember seeing my parents after the surgery and I was like thumbs up and just beaming because I really felt like, I think you have, we've talked about this before, but it was like this ball and chain was gone. I wasn't imprisoned by my, my leg anymore. And it was interesting being fit with my first prosthesis because I'll never forget my prosthetist asking me about what my goals were. And then he asked me, what is your priority with your prosthesis? How it looks or how it functions? In other words, do you want, do you need it to look like your other leg? And I said, and I had met with him before I had the amputation. So he saw what I had been dealing with. And I said, I want it to function. I don't care what it looks like. I, I've been living with this. I had been living with this disfigured leg for decades. So it didn't matter to me. And, um, you know, I go out now and I don't think about it, about wearing a prosthesis. Um, my first foot was an awesome blade type foot. It was incredibly dynamic and responsive. And it was, it was great to get walking again. The challenge I had was that I, it could only accommodate, you know, the one heel height of like an athletic shoe or, or like a dress shoe, but only a specific heel height. And that was, that was fine for me because my ankle was essentially not moving a lot before I had it amputated. So I was pretty restricted into what type of footwear I could wear anyway. And I also had a, a um, what do you call it? A lift on each of my shoes. Cause my, I had a limb length discrepancy. So I was used to only wearing a certain heel height for or over three decades. Um, however, a few years ago, I got fit with an adjustable heel height foot. And I remember the like one of the first days I was wearing it, I had heels on and the prosthetist that fit me with it, um, I said, oh my gosh, I feel like I'm 19 again. 
I mean, seriously, the last time I had worn heels was when I was 19. So I just, I, I just like, all of a sudden, I just, it was so cool. <laughs> you know, I but do, you know, it, it's interesting what you just shared because I'm a mentor with um, Shirley Ryan Ability Lab, which is in, re, in Chicago, and also with the Amputee Coalition. And just a month or so ago, I was talking to a patient and she was commenting about, I can't wear heels anymore. And I said, what makes you think you can't wear heels anymore? And she said, well, I'm going to have a prosthesis. And I said, oh, no, girl, <laughs> you can wear heels. I'm wearing heels. <laughs> so it's that mind shift of just say, do it for you, man. Like, do it. Own, yeah, own it. Own it. This is, yeah. this is who I am. Absolutely. As one of my friends, one of my close friends um, who was just, incredibly helpful during my amputation and whatnot I remember her saying if you don't like what you see look away so but amputation isn't the only thing really that um, you've come across with in your challenges talking about different journeys you've had other challenges as well perhaps maybe you can share some of that with us with our listeners as well um sure the the accident I was in, as I mentioned, required um, numerous surgeries. And during the initial surgeries I had, I received blood transfusions. And lo and behold, 20 years later, I found out that I had acquired hepatitis C from the transfusions. So um, I learned that shortly after my youngest and fourth child was born. So I had a year of daily chemotherapy in hopes to eradicate it, which fortunately we did. Um, After that, back in 2008, um, I had had a cut or a lesion on my tongue for a couple of years. And I had been going to the dentist and commenting on it. And he had done a few things like file a filling, put a crown on the tooth that was adjacent to the, the cut. And one night after having friends over for, for fajitas, I remember because they were kind of spicy, I thought, God darn it, that cut is still there and it really hurts. Gosh, that's been a long time that's been there. And somehow the light bulb went off that a lesion that doesn't heal is a sign of cancer. So the next day I got into the dentist and said, I want you to write me a, a, an order for a biopsy. And lo and behold, um, I had no risk factors for it. I've never smoked, but I had oral cancer. So in 2008, I had surgery and about 30% of my tongue was removed. Um, and I remember at the time, I was just terrified. I mean, the, the cancer, the C word, is just a horrible word for anybody to hear. And I remember telling my surgeon, I don't care if you have to cut my whole tongue out, I will learn sign language, just get rid of this. Um, So anyway, so I had surgery for that. um, And I went many years cancer free. And the five-year survival rate for oral cancer is 50%. So 
and most of that is due to people being diagnosed late stage. Um, so awareness is key because a lot of people doesn't, don't even know it's out there and it's killing more people every year than cervical cancer, for example. So anyway, um, so I had that challenge. Um, a couple of years ago, I had part of my thyroid removed for thyroid cancer. And this past year, I had my third battle with cancer. Um, I discovered a lump under my tongue about a, a little over a year ago. And unfortunately it was cancer again. So I had it removed. Um, I had the surgery. And then after that, it was advised that I have radiation. So I had six weeks of radiation that began right as COVID was starting to <laughs> become known. Um, and it was a real, it was a real struggle. It was a, just a brutal experience. And using a prosthesis, it, it's interesting in a medical environment because even though you're talking with doctors, you know, we are a minority. There in the US, there are two million people with limb difference. And exposure to people using a prosthesis is not all that common, even though, you know, in our group, like, you know, we we we're, we we know so many people, right? But um, so going to the doctor and talking about the side effects, one of them was just the radiation of my mouth and my throat literally burned the inside of my mouth and my throat. And so weight loss is a big challenge for people. In I shouldn't say weight loss. Maintaining your weight is a real big challenge for people. And I shared with them that I was really concerned about this going into treatment because I use a prosthesis and weight fluctuation is so problematic for us. Mm -hmm. So I was highly motivated to maintain my weight. And I asked about even having a feeding tube before I started because I was so concerned about it. And um, they felt that we could ma manage things. So, um, Unfortunately, as I went through treatment, I ended up losing 20% of my weight within about a three month period. And I did end up needing a new socket because of that. Um, there have been some really nasty side effects from the radiation and just uh, regaining my strength and accepting some of the limitations that I have and um, you know, my speech was impacted. So I had speech therapy and whatnot, but it was a real struggle and cancer for the third time. I still haven't really wrapped my head around that either. <laughs> Frankly, um, it gives me an appreciation for each day for sure. And, you know, going back to golf, that's, that's part of my recovery. I think, I think, you know, going out to play golf, to your point, um, is helpful not only from getting a physical activity in, but also just being surrounded by, by like minds of just going out and enjoying the company. Yes, yes. Well, I, I, for, for, for me, the, the diagnosis last year was a, really a shock because I had been to my oncologist for my annual 
checkup seven months before I found the lump. And for it to have shown itself so quickly, and it was, I mean, it was just, it was really alarming. You know, and plus I had had surgery, a couple surgeries the year before, one for the thyroid cancer and another to remove a growth in my abdomen. And I think I saw you after that because it was yes. the Midwest because I, I wasn't capable of golfing yet, but I wanted to see all my buddies. So I went down to the tournament <laughs> to your point of the, the socialization of golf. <laughs> I had some complications with the abdominal surgery. So it was really a, I, and I really thought that after that one, I thought, you know what? I've had over 50 surgeries now in my lifetime. Three dozen of them, I think, were for my leg, but, you know, over 50 for these different challenges I've had, this has got to be it. I just thought, you know, this has got to be it, right? I've, I, my punch card is, <laughs> is all punched out. <laughs> and then, oh, no. Oh, no. There's more. You know? Right. So, yeah, it was a real, it was a, it's been a real challenging year. <laughs> I relocated the end of 2019 um, to be closer to my parents because my dad's health was failing and my mom was really taking care of my dad 24 seven. So I wanted to provide support and with, for my parents because they've been there for me through so many challenges I've had. And it just felt like where I needed to be. And it was part of why I started my own business a couple of years ago was to be have more flexibility with my schedule and be able to be there for my parents. Mm -hmm. And you know, lo and behold, the day I moved, unfortunately, we ended up calling my dad an ambulance and paramedics arrived within 10 minutes after moving trucks arrived for me. And he ended up in the hospital with sepsis and then went to a nursing facility. And that's where he's been ever since. So that was a real difficult, um, time emotionally. And then a month later, I got the cancer diagnosis and um, the surgery and then the radiation. It, it, it was a real tough year. And, you know, I recall you mentioning that your amputation, your second amputation surgery was almost postponed because you had a fever and all I could relate because my last day of radiation therapy I woke up with a temperature and it was COVID. So I, I wasn't, I, I did not have COVID, right. but I called the nurse and said, here's what's going on. You know, I have a temperature. And of course, a lot of the side effects from the radiation, sore throat, whatever, um, were similar to COVID symptoms. So tough to differentiate. And she said, you're going to have to go in for a test. We're going to have to delay your last day of treatment. And I just thought, oh, come on, make it stop. <laughs> you know, Give me a I, break I here. Through this, yeah, like, I just want to get through this last day. And I, and, you know, friends and family said, why don't you just forget about the last day? And I just thought, you know, I've come this far. I just got to go through with it. And I actually talked to my radiation oncologist and he said, I said, is there any significance to this six weeks of treatment, you know, 30 days? protocol. And he said, actually, there is, there is a statistical difference in recurrence for those people that, that get to 30 days. So anyway, um, 
Well, I, you know, I've been thinking lately about what skills have I acquired from going through these different challenges. So for example, a conversation I had last summer with my youngest sister, the last day of my radiation treatment, I had, I had stayed, I was staying with a friend because I had moved an hour and a half away from where I was treated. I mean, and it wasn't feasible for me to drive an hour and a half each way a couple weeks into treatment, I was just too exhausted. So I have a friend that lives 10 minutes from the treatment facility and the, I had packed all my clothes, right? And I had packed some t-shirts. One of them was the Superman t-shirt. And I thought, you know, maybe if I need a boost one day, I'll wear that, right? Well, I did, hadn't worn it. And the last day of treatment finally came around and I thought, I should wear that shirt. I should wear that shirt. And then I got up and I went to put it on and I looked in the mirror and I thought, I feel so foolish. Some, a woman my age put, come on, you know? And then I thought, the heck with it. This has been hell. <laughs> and, and if there's a day to wear this shirt, this is the day. So I wore the shirt and I had some you know, pictures taken you ring this bell on the last day of your treatment and, and whatnot. And anyway, so I had a picture I posted on social media wearing the Superman shirt and holding my, my facial cage thing that they use to strap you down to the table. Anyway, my youngest sister commented months later, she said, I just love that picture. And I said, that is so interesting that you, say that because I felt so foolish that like I when I put the t-shirt on and I got to talking to her and then I had a conversation with my friend I mentioned before who's a priest and John and I were talking and I brought this conversation up and as we're talking I said you know John I guess I really have had to become my own hero and I think each of us do because we find people who have walked on similar paths, but they aren't the same. We each have our own journey and we really need to figure out what's going to work for us because what works for somebody else might not be the, the right strategy for us. So and my friend John said, Deborah, you really need to start talking about this and sharing some of this hard won wisdom. <laughs> Go start talking on YouTube or something. So that was the impetus. <laughs> it was a reminder for me that I need to focus on how fortunate I am that I found it, I was treated and I'm on the other side even though I don't maybe like everything. <laughs> yeah, I'm living yeah. it. it is what it is. It is what it is. You know what? I, I used to have that on my, on my, on my desk. It is what it is because I, I, I can only look at what is ahead, right? Like how do I deal with this now? It happened. What now? How are you going to adapt to that? And how are you going to change your attitude towards getting right. beyond that? 
it is what yeah. it is, right? Well, it yes. is what it is. Can be taken as it is what it is. Oh well, or it is what it is. What are you gonna do now? Well, and so. I remember, I remember seeing a a truck, and on the back of the truck, it said, "Scars are tattoos with better stories." And you know what? I mean, I have scars on my face. I have scars on my neck. I have scars on my abdomen now, on my hips, from bone grafts and my, you know, whatever, skin grafts, whatever. That's just part of who I am. It's part of the fabric of my life now. And, you know, you were mentioning, uh, we were talking about body image and whatnot. And it's ironic to me that using a prosthesis, which is so obvious, invisible, I feel less self-conscious. I mean, I just feel confident like when I walk I feel confident because I can walk better and I work at walking I've had people comment that they see me walking outside because I I literally take a walk every day because I am relearning how to walk and I have to remind myself of how to move my body it takes work to be oh, a successful prosthesis user, you know? No, I, 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 I tell people that all the time. Um, well, and, and, and you know, I mean, people, people will comment, oh, you walk so well. And I, I say, I work at it. It's a, right. it's a constant effort. And, and also it brings me joy because I'm able to, and it's a, it's a source of contemplation and reconnection if you will you know taking right. a walk is just a restorative thing for me right no absolutely no I um I love that well you know to your point I've I've talked to women um you know and men too who are really concerned about their appearance after an amputation and how um how people will be attracted to them and it's all in, it's all between your ears. It's all, to me, it's all a matter of confidence because I'm the same person I was before I had my amputation and I felt very unattractive. And after amputation and being able to walk again, I, I feel like, like an attractive person. Yeah, no, agree. Or no, a more absolutely. attractive person. And right. it, it's, it's been interesting because there have been some prosthetic conferences I've been to where I think you'll love this. I've literally, you know, I'm wearing a dress. I walk up to a prosthetist or some medical professional at the, conf- at the conference and I'll be talking to them and I'll mention something about using a prosthesis and several occasions I've had somebody say you use a prosthesis I'm thinking I'm standing right here I'm standing in front of you wearing a dress (laughs) and I think it's such a compliment because if you're self-conscious about something you kind of wear that or you you emote that if you will right I was going to say so that you know that that attractiveness that you're talking about. I think it just come it comes off because of your energy, right? 
and that confidence. And that's how you always come across is because you have this big, bright smile. It lights up a room as soon as you walk in. It just there's this aura about you that just like, you know, if you could see her face right now, she's got a big, big, great smile, everybody. But it's, it's that you. confidence, right? That makes that I think people find attractive and it's attractive and and you know physically you are a beautiful woman and but you had this exuberance about you and this 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 positive light that comes through you that just people you know get attracted to it right and that's that's part of your whole attractiveness and and what you show people and that that inner light in you that shows to people i i am this person and watch out world i'm i'm here i've arrived and I think that's what you have. It's when you go into a room, you're like, Deborah has arrived, everybody. I'm here. You know, and you have this confidence about you. I, well, I appreciate your compliments because I don't, we all, I think we all have a different lens by which we view ourselves. And I don't see that in myself. So I really appreciate what you're sharing. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. No, they, I mean, truly this, I've, I've, and I've known that about you. And, and that's why it's like, that's why I said, you know, it's funny how we don't get to see each other all that often, but yet when we see each other, it's like, we just saw each other yesterday. I, I agree. I have a lot. I mean, I, I, I have a lot of people in my life that I feel that way about just because there's some connection there that it's intangible, but it's, it's so pervasive too. If that makes right. sense. Yeah. You know? No, it's just there, isn't it? Like it's, yes. it's interesting. Yes. It's, it's, it, and it's lovely and it's a lovely thing. It is. Well, I, you know, I'd love it. You know, I think that people can either cast a shadow or be a light for others. And I certainly want to be a light for other people. Um, I remember as my children were growing up, I would say to them, just because you have problems, does not mean you get to be a problem to somebody else. And I, I believe that I, I have plenty of dark moments and times that where I'm discouraged and it's really tough to get myself, you know, up, but that doesn't mean that I get to be a burden to somebody else because everybody's got something. I mean, I, I, I think of my, limb difference and wearing a prosthesis it's the most visible challenge that I have but it sure isn't the biggest right no and I think we need to realize that for other people too they may not mm -hmm. be showing a physical um, disability but there are the things that that could be going on with that person that we don't know and it's just we Absolutely. have to be cognizant and aware of those things and be we make sure we practice empathy and make sure that, you know, we try to be a light to them instead of bringing them down is very exactly. important. And exactly. you're doing a great job of that, my friend. Now, listen, we could talk for hours and hours, um, but this is a one hour show. Oh. <laughs> um, but, um, but I just want to ask you this one Part more question. Two. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, if there is anything that you want our listeners to take away from your story today, what would that be? And what advice would you give our listeners? Well, one thing is what we just talked about, which is, you know, like I have a very visible challenge, which is limb difference and using a prosthesis, but 
I've had so many other challenges that have been more difficult to get through. And we can't make, we cannot make assumptions about other people based on their physical appearance. These are just, our bodies are just the vehicles to get our spirits through this lifetime. And, um, you know, if we can, if we can help empower somebody else because of a challenge that we've gotten through, then for me, that brings it, brings meaning to it. Right. Now that's perfectly said as well. I've come to realize that for me, if sharing my experience or being out there playing golf or walking, whatever it is, if it helps somebody get through something that, that is what creates reason for me. That is so to empower, to be able to help somebody empower themselves. It, it's just so rewarding. Um, Oh, absolutely. I, and I agree. So speaking of that, where can people find you online? Um, well, probably the best place is my website, which is deborasmith.com. So it's pretty simple. My name, D-E-B-O-R-A-H-S-M-I-T-H.com. Um, there's a contact page there if, if someone would like to reach out. I'm on social media on Facebook and Instagram as to Deborah Smith. And um, I'll have my YouTube going pretty soon here. Sounds great. Yes. Um, Deborah, again, as I said at the beginning, your big smile and your positive energy just lights up any room. I look forward to seeing you on the links on hopefully any upcoming golf tournaments that uh, you and I will cross paths again when this lockdown is all over. I want to thank Deborah for um, joining me today. I'll share all the links on my website at www.aristotelmedia.com. Thank you for tuning in. If you have any comments, questions, or show ideas, please connect with me on Facebook and Instagram at The MPTO Show. Until next time, I'm your host, Aristotle Domingo, and this has been The MPTO Show Podcast.